Greetings and salutations, all you sportsmen and women out there and conservationists across New York State and the Fruited Plain to another episode of We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport. Hey, I am your humble host, Rich Davenport, coming to you from sunny Tandawanda, New York. That's right, sportsmen and women, welcome back to another episode of We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport, coming to you on Anchor.fm, powered by Spotify. You can get this podcast on Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and Beacon and Free Radio and Pocket Casts and, of course, Anchor.fm. Hey, please help support this podcast by donating to the cause. $2 a month, $5 a month, whatever you can afford, as it helps me push back on the propaganda in the news while providing conservation news and commentary, along with sound science and conservation principles. And hey, folks, speaking of commentary, it's my show, it's my commentary, and my opinion. And it doesn't necessarily reflect any of the official positions of any organization I may be a part of. But if it is an official position, I'm going to let you know about it. And also, the views expressed on this show may not necessarily reflect the views of this program's sponsors and advertisers, just so we're all clear, okay? Great. And hey, folks, you know, help spread the word. You know, we're growing by leaps and bounds. We're building on 2021's success, and we just keep on growing. And, and uh, you know, it's great to expand the audience, and I thank you very much. I'm very appreciative, and welcome back. Um, you know, in previous episodes, we have been uh, discussing a move that seems to be gaining some traction, especially in states like Utah and Arizona, where the use of trail cameras during the open hunting seasons, and that's really big game seasons, uh, predominantly deer, are being prohibited with concerns regarding fair chase and undue pressure or advantage these devices may be perceived as delivering. Although, you know, much of the attention is more so focused on the newer smart uh, trail cameras that can connect to the internet via cellular networks to transmit images in near real time to the camera owner. Some stats or some states, I should say, are dispensing with these definitions and just banning all trail cameras in use in total during the, the uh, hunting seasons. You know, well, Ohio has chimed in on this issue as well, and according to news reports, no plans exist at all in Ohio to regulate these devices. You know, that's good news, although the DNR does evaluate emerging technology for any potential concerns regarding the tenets of conservation and if any violation of fair chase concepts may exist. The Ohio Division of uh, Wildlife District 3 Manager Scott Angelo told the Daily Record that the state has no official stance on the cameras. He did clarify, however, that the department regularly evaluates technology, so, you know, that leaves the door open for change in the future. Local hunters who spoke with the Daily Record stated that while they understood the argument against trail cams, they also wanted to avoid adding more regulations to the state hunting laws. It sounds like a simplistic answer that was probably just filled in because some of the real answers probably didn't jibe with any of the uh, you know potential narratives or agenda that's underneath all of this. Uh, but I can certainly appreciate the concerns and the wary approach many are taking with these very capable devices. It would seem that the camera itself delivers great benefit to a hunter in terms of preseason scouting, as today's hectic lifestyle does diminish the time he can spend conducting the old school scouting during summer and early fall. However, trail cameras afford the hunter a glimpse at what animals may be frequenting your intended hunting stand location and even give some insight into when deer may be moving to a degree. 
but trail cameras don't show you the routes being traveled. They don't point out how bucks are starting to mark their territory. A trail camera, in essence, provides a degree of confidence that deer are in the area of where you are intending to hunt. But, you know, it also may show what animals may be passing by, but it doesn't guarantee that you have an advantage over these animals. <clears throat> Smart technologies that can connect to cellular wireless uh, wide area networks and transmit images or live video to the owner's PC or smartphone, eliminating the need to visit the camera to extract the SD card and download images to see what is up, well, you know, that can certainly raise some questions regarding fair chase. After all, you know, having to visit the camera puts you in the deer's living room. They have a chance to get a full nose, full year scent. Or you could walk into the wrong place at the wrong time and spook those animals right out. A smart trail camera requires no visitation to pull the data and view the images, resulting in a scent-free, disturbance-free condition that some could view as a violation of fair chase. Use of these smart devices in critical areas like watering holes or near food plots could give hunters a clear real-time update as to what animals are present immediately, and during the season this could act sort of as an unfair surveillance and intel to act upon. This is the main reason why during the season um, use is being banned in Utah, and Arizona sees conflict around the scarce and high demand watering holes, especially on public lands where hunting pressure is fairly high, and that perceived unfair advantage is actually being brought to light by some hunters for whatever reasons they may have. It's good to know that a state like Ohio, a state with a solid reputation for excellent deer management and deer hunting, has taken a hands-off approach for now, as certainly much more is involved in scouting and hunting than having cameras providing a glimpse of activity in the woods, you know? Although I can certainly see the concerns around a smart camera, um, you know, it their use during a big game season, you know, I could, I could kind of... Uh, you know, see that concern, but, you know, weighing the realities around what they actually deliver to the hunter and how it impacts the hunt is what should be considered. Giving a hunter more confidence in a spot doesn't change the fairest chase conditions, but if a camera is used to signal a hunter via camera placement on a deer run, transmitting a motion-triggered image to your phone while you're in the stand, well, that could be viewed as similarly as one hunter on a two-way radio letting another hunter, their hunter buddy, um, know that some deer are ahead of their way as he pushed them out and here they come, get ready. Um, you know, but these cameras, these, whether they're smart or whether they're not, you know, they're stationary. They're not capable of following or trailing or tracking deer from one part of their range to another. Lots of guesswork and process of elimination is still left to do. It's still up to the hunter to put the pieces together. Now, if we were talking stealth drones that you can now buy at any hobby store or online or even at Walmart with extended range and high definition cameras, you know, that would be unfair and a violation of fair chase tenants. Certainly some great uses for those devices exist like checking habitat or updating aerial photos of your hunting grounds. And certainly from a research perspective, these remote uh, unmanned aerial vehicles are terrific in that area. But hunters aren't conducting studies to further define management elements. And, you know, they would use these tools to figure out where the deer are moving and maybe gain an, un, you know, an advantage over them. Whether or not that advantage was unfair is you know, obviously up for debate. In any event, this is the 21st century's advancements and impacts on hunting. Like many other advances in firearms optics, laser, laser rangefinders, projectile ballistics, faster bows, more accurate arrows due to newer materials, new designs for muzzleloaders, all of it. We're constantly surrounded by evolution of improvement. 
And these issues and advancements do require one to have a full understanding of the North American wildlife conservation model, the seven sisters of conservation, and adherence to fair chase in the face of ever-changing tools of the trade. But, you know, regardless of that, you know, we will keep our eyes on this and continue to provide you all with updates. But as of right now, you know, looks like Ohio is going in the opposite direction of Utah and Arizona. And considering, you know, Ohio's strength in the deer world, their uh, reputation for management, their high harvest, their high heart, uh, hunter numbers, etc., and the partnership that is in place between hunters and landowners, it's a good one to have on the side of keeping these things available for use. In other news, DEC, New York State DEC, has released several proposals to the WMA use and even their strategic planning for state forest management with comment periods ending the first week of March. So they're, they're coming due real soon here, folks. Got another week to go. Uh, they also have released some guidance to the community at large concerning coyotes and the breeding season commencing, which it is right now, which advises this time of year when, you know, it always advises, the DEC does, this time of year when conflicts can arise between people and these predators. You know, coyote populations have grown significantly across New York State since the first real assessments were done back in the early 1990s. And now you can find these resourceful animals not only in rural settings, but even in urban settings, as they certainly can be rather bold, especially during the mating period. So being coyote smart, kind of like being bear smart, involves taking certain steps to make sure you're not encouraging coyote to hang around, okay? Uh, you know, a few of those things, number one, obviously, don't feed coyotes. If they get used to an easy food source, and it's coming from humans, they will remain in your area, and this problem gets compounded by their quick loss of fear. So, you know, don't be handing out food to coyotes, folks, okay? Number two, don't feed your pets outside. Uh, I know that, you know, a lot of folks do have outdoor cats, uh, you know, sometimes outdoor-only dogs. You know, they will put the food bowl outside and let them have at it. Um, but, you know, this is... Something that a coyote will also take advantage of, folks. You know, dog food and cat food are just as tasty to the coyotes as it is to Fido or Fluffy. In fact, you know, that they even talk about, you know, in point number three, securing your garbage cans and compost piles if you compost. That's because coyotes, like dogs, they're omnivores. You know, just like people and black bears, too. They can eat anything they can get their mouths on. And it's advised that you take down bird feeders after April 1st as well, as not only will coyote eat the seed that's kind of spread down across on the ground, but they will also set up to ambush birds and rodents that are drawn to the seed as well. And, of course, you don't want them setting up in your backyard for that kind of thing because now that becomes their hunting grounds and they can get a little territorial. Uh, don't let your pets roam unattended especially this time of year, but, you know, any time of year, really. You know, there's leash laws for dogs. Cats, obviously, you know, people let them roam. They, they do what they want to do. They, they, you know, sometimes they'll come back, you know, a couple days later, a couple hours later to the home. But, you know, letting them roam uh, unsupervised or unattended, I should say, uh, you know, when you have coyotes in an area, you know, small dogs and cats are viewed as easy prey for coyote. And the last thing you want to do is find out that your dog or cat, your beloved family pet, has fallen prey to one of these predators. Secure any livestock. You know, that's another good point. You know, chickens, rabbits, lambs, etc. In predator-resistant pens or enclosures, and especially at night. You know, they like to hunt at night, but they'll hunt during the day as well. Uh, and, and keeping the easy prey from them 
you know, to discourage them or make them work a lot harder than it would be to, to dig out that mouse or, or uh, that that bird that they might be able to grab. You know, that's the idea of securing something. You know, make it make it very hard and a lot of energy and a lot of time to try to get that. They'll turn their attention to something easier. And finally, enjoy coyote from a distance. And they are magnificent animals. And if one does try to approach you, you know, get big and loud, as that will definitely scare them off. You know, so long as they're not acclimated to food and getting it from a human. Uh, but enjoy them from a distance. You know, they are a beautiful animal. I've got some photos that I took uh, quite a while ago, actually, in the town of Amherst, uh, up in North Amherst, uh, right in front of an area that uh, is a road leading to this place called Manor Lanes. And, you know, I, I do want to get an updated photo of the area, as it also shows what natural succession does to lands. But when I took that picture, there was a big meadow and right along the tree line. There was a tree line and then, a, and, you know, basically a grassland. And that's where I got the coyote, you know, doing some mousing in there. Today, it's all mar it's marginal brush in first-stage successional forest. It's really incredible how quickly that's grown up. But neither here nor there. You want to just definitely enjoy them from a distance. Don't try to get up close. God, don't try to get a, a selfie or something. And certainly don't toss them food to get them closer. You know, this time of year is also pretty active, you know, for the DEC wildlife folks in other areas. Um, you know, obviously they're they're gearing up for, uh, you know, trying to, to calculate their winter uh, surveys that they have done. And some of that, too, is uh, there's a project underway toward, towards uh, early spring that, you know, it actually rolls through early spring. But it's a, a study that right now is involving banding mallard duck hens with GPS tracking chips for a breeding and movement study to try to better understand the dynamics that could provide insight into recent declines in mallard populations. There are other studies such as contaminant levels and vitamin B3 level studies that are underway and or just wrapping up this season's efforts. But, um, you know, they've got this banding, uh, you know, effort going on with these uh, mallards to try to figure out a little bit more about the, the females and the breeding to try to get a handle on why these populations are declining. You know, there are also some fisher studies that are ongoing, um, including, uh, you know, doing uh, these trail cam surveys and such. That continues, and they're even doing some tracking of, uh, you know, telemetry tracking of these fishers as well. So just, folks, be aware of that because, you know, it, the DEC doesn't just work during the fishing season and the hunting season. Well, folks, you hear that music? That's right. That means the first segment of this episode of We Love Outdoors is in the can, and i got to take my first break of the day. But folks, don't go anywhere. Stick around because We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport will be right back.
And welcome back, all you sportsmen and women and conservationists across New York State and the Fruited Plain to the second segment of We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport, coming to you from sunny Tandawanda, New York. Oh, boy, yeah, you know, it it is a beautiful day out. I will have to admit that after we had a nice little blizzard on Saturday. Um, you know, that's, it was just absolutely fantastic and wonderful, but you know, this, uh, this segment here, the second segment of We Love Outdoors is sponsored by Chautauqua Real Outdoors Guide and Tackle. Hey, they're located at 165 Fairmont Avenue in Lakewood, New York, and that's in the Save-A-Lot and Dollar General Plaza. You know, Chautauqua Real Outdoors carries a full line of ice fishing equipment, including jet sleds and augers, rod and reel combos, tip-ups, and much more. They have a big selection of ice jigging Rapalas and other ice fishing tackle, and they offer an auger blade sharpening service with quick turnaround. It's so important. Live baits available. They're open year-round. You can find them on Facebook or on the web at ChautauquaRealOutdoors.com. You know, it, it, it was a terrible thing with that blizzard on Saturday. You know, it was the first uh, free fishing weekend of the season. Uh, you know, President's Day weekend on the 19th and 20th of February is a free fishing weekend, or it was. And, of course, it was also the uh, ice festival down in Mayville, and as fate would have it, we had a blizzard down there on Saturday with high winds, roaring winds, blowing and drifting snow. Um, you know, there was a walleye tournament that was held, a one-day tournament out of Hogan's Hut there. Uh, folks did get out to fish, but it was a very, very, very bad weather day from, from my point of view, for sure. And, uh, you know, it was just just really sad. I mean, the, the folks over at uh, Mayville just can't catch a break, you know. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, it was still, we had some fish fishing going on. Um, you know, the tw 2022 Chautauqua Lake Ice Fishing Derby's got one more week left before the scales close. Plenty of time to hook a winner in any of the six categories. Uh, and right now, the crappie category is wide open. So, you know, you still got six days or so. It, it, that uh, tournament ends at uh, noon on uh, February 27th. That's a Sunday. That's next Sunday. So you got six days to go, folks. You know, get your get your fish picture taken, uh, catch a big one, get it in, and you know, you will be uh, under consideration if you are one of the first uh, top two places. You will win a cash prize, and the winner of the the walleye uh, category will also win a, a charter for um, a Lake Erie walleye charter with uh, uh, mostly muskies charters. That's donated by Captain Larry Jones. Thank you very much, Captain. Uh, you know, so you know we are all still awaiting some decisions. Uh, from DEC Fisheries uh, concerning the fate of two fishing regulation proposals, uh, two packages. Number one was the big panfish initiative regulations that impact sunfish and crappie, and the regulatory simplification proposals, which included adjustment of uh, some season openers to get away from that Saturday and move to a hard date. According to the DEC Fisheries Manager in Albany, Steve Hurst, the big panfish regulations, which are awaiting adoptions, could clear very soon and be included in the regulatory updates that start April 1st. In regards to the regulation simplification and season changes, I have heard from Mr. Hurst that over 400 comments were received, which is pretty impressive in my view. I wish hunters were as actively involved. In fact, that's the highest count of comments received for any fisheries proposed change, barring the bait fish for kerfuffle back in 2005-2006 and the VHS containment rules that were put in place, where many public meetings were held and input collected in person. 
Fisheries has been very active conducting angler surveys and specifically to the opening day survey before proposing the changes in the last round of proposals. DEC has now collected enough valid email addresses from anglers to actually give these surveys some teeth with lower margin of errors that was reported as plus or minus 0.75%. And that's lower than it's ever been before. You know, gauging angler sentiment, desire, and preferences is part of the job. And DEC has been working very hard, very hard, to get to the point where this invaluable input can be engaged and collected electronically. That's, you know, obviously with the technologies that's around today, it only makes sense to try to do this and, and collect this stuff on an electronic basis. The comp compilation of the stuff is just much faster. You get a lot deeper insight a lot quicker. And their hope is to also develop report cards on the initiatives to help gauge results as well as angler perceptions of these results. And that's just, you know, absolutely wonderful news to hear. And, you know, anglers, I, I just urge everyone to please continue to participate and be engaged in these processes. I believe DEC is doing a great job in this area. And as have I said before, when the department does good things, they deserve recognition and plaudits for their efforts. And this is indeed the case here as well. So kudos to Steve Hurst and his fisheries team across New York State. They're doing a great job, even in the face of COVID, COVID, COVID. And once that's all behind us, I'm sure the works will get even better. So, you know, my hat's off to them. In other news, the streak of record-breaking catches, folks, it's continuing in 2022 as reports of a 60-year-old record being broken are coming out of North Carolina after Division of Marine Fisheries confirmed the catch, a 12-pound, 8-ounce speckled trout caught by angler Todd Spangler, and it's indeed the largest of this species ever caught from North Carolina waters. The old record was 12 pounds, 4 ounces, and that was caught off Wrightsville Beach. It was set back in 1961. This current measured uh, fish, you know, this 12-pound, 8-ounce speckled trout measured 33 inches long, and it sported a 19-inch girth. Wow. He took the fish to the Noose River bait and tackle to have it weighed and scored on the store's certified scales, and on Facebook, the store called it truly a fish of a lifetime. So, folks, two months into 2022, we got two new record catches. Absolutely fantastic. Awesome. Great job. And as reported earlier, a special lake sturgeon season was held on the uh, Black Lake in Michigan, which afforded interested anglers a chance to ice fish for lake sturgeon. They had to register for this season, which was planned to run from February 5th to 9th. So with those hours, too, on uh, the uh, season, which, you know, again, I, I said was February 5th through 9th, the hours of each day was 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, the season was going to run until February 9th or until the quota of six fish for the season was reached, unless five fish were caught in a single day, at which point the season would close to avoid over-harvest of the resource. Well, folks, the season lasted a whopping 36 minutes. As Michigan DNR officials reported, the season ended at 8.36 a.m. on February 5th. Anglers could either spearfish or use hook and line through the ice, with participating anglers needing to indicate their participation by marking their shanty with a red flag as to allow DNR officials to know who to notify once the season closed. Okay, So there were 565 anglers that actually registered to participate in this special season, which included a good number of supervised youth. 
Vitals on the fish harvested included five males and one female sturgeon, and all six fish had been previously captured uh, and or tagged by Michigan DNR officials during spring spawning runs in the Black River or from past surveys conducted in Black Lake. Pretty neat. Uh, the rundown, the first fish harvested was a 59.5 inch female that weighed 48 pounds. No details were offered on when this fish was first captured and documented by the DNR officials. The second fish harvested was the largest fish taken during the season. It was a 62 inch male that weighed 67 pounds. The fish originally was captured in every other year in the spawning run from 2000 through, 2002 through 2020. Uh, fish number three, 47-inch male, weighed in at 25 pounds. That one had been tagged in 2006, 2010, and the 2012 spawning runs. Fish number four uh, was a 57-inch female, that, uh, 57-inch male rather, that weighed uh, about 45 pounds, and that fish had been captured and tagged during the 2002, 2006, 2007, 2009, 2013, 2019, and 2021 spawning runs in the Black River. That was an active male for sure. Fish number five, a 46-inch male that weighed 23 pounds, had no details offered concerning its past DNR encounters. And the final fish that was harvested of the six was another male. That one measured 56 inches in length, weighing 35 pounds. That fish had been captured in 2013, 2016, 2017, 2019, and the 2021 spawning runs. So there you have it. You know, participating anglers, uh, you know, they were notified of the season closure in a variety of ways, uh, from nearly instantaneous text alerts and ice shanty visits from DNR personnel. All methods that were used to indicate the season's end uh, happened within minutes of the final fish being harvested. And, you know, it was obviously a successful season, considering the fact that it only lasted 36 whole minutes. Now, you know, that's that's really neat. Hopefully, you know, at some point in time with the, the uh, lake sturgeon restoration efforts that we have going on in New York State, that at some point in the not-too-distant, we can also see a limited season for uh, lake sturgeon as well here. Uh, they're considered threatened, and uh, therefore you really can't possess them, you can't fish for them. But if you do incidentally catch them while, uh, you know, fishing for another species, it's best to handle it at the boat. Just try to, you know, pull that hook out of the mouth or cut the line and let that hook just dissolve and rot away and fall out naturally. Uh, you want to limit the handling to virtually nothing, as again, these fish are protected. They're threatened species in New York State. Uh, but, you know, there has been a, a lot of study that's been going on uh, on the lake sturgeon, and it's kind of ironic um, as the reason why this, these studies began really, you know, happening in, in earnest recently was due to some anglers taking pictures of several sturgeon that were caught while walleye fishing uh, not too far from the North Gap in the, the Buffalo Harbor. Harbor. Uh, that's the gap closest to the Roundhouse and the, uh, uh, the headwaters of the Upper Niagara River. And there were four or five sturgeon that they caught and they pictured, you know, holding them up out of the water. And, you know, they posted them on, on uh, uh, social media and the DEC got a hold of them. And, you know, they were like, well, you know, this is illegal. We technically could write you a, a ticket, but, you know, obviously you didn't uh, intend to hurt the fish. They were put back. And by the way, uh, thank you for revealing that these fish are here in numbers. And it actually triggered a, a spawning and a telemetry study on these fish in that area. Uh, that was done several years ago. I think it was a three-year study. They may still be going on, and it could be ongoing. 
But if it wasn't for those anglers and those pictures, kind of breaking the law a little bit, um, you know, that study would not have happened. And, you know, that's, that's the thing I like to remind people of is that, you know, when you're talking about angling or hunting for that matter, but especially, you know, we fishermen have a lot to offer uh, the state uh, fisheries biologists and managers in our observations. You know, we're the guys and gals that are out there interacting on a regular basis and, you know, not the biologists and the fisheries managers, you know, when they're out there, they've got a special project going on. And, you know, we're out there fishing and pursuing our pastime. And, and yes, some of the fisheries biologists and fisheries managers are avid fishermen themselves. They like to get out on the water and they like to catch fish. But, you know, that's a break for them. That's their downtime. You know, they may mark down in a diary what they saw. But the most valuable input that they get is from the fishing public, the angling public. And this is why the creel surveys are conducted at various launch ramps across various waters uh, for different species, depending on the uh, study that's being conducted. Um, you know, we get creel surveys from trout up in the streams. There's, you know, creel surveys continually out of the, the, the Buffalo Small Boat Harbor or Buffalo Safe Harbor now that it's called. Um, you know, checking for walleye and bass and perch. And, you know, they'll ask you how many fish you caught and any, you know, did you catch any other fish that you weren't really intending on catching? This information is vital. It's vital information, folks, that allows, uh, you know, our fisheries people to get that feedback. You know, much like the birding people rely upon this uh, uh, great backyard bird count that is last day is today. Uh, you know, it's, it's not intuitive for most to understand that, you know, bird counts and bird watchers, you know, have to report their information too to the researchers so they can get a handle on what's going on. It's not like you've got open seasons and people fishing and you can bring fish in to examine. You know, they're not going out there and, and collecting songbirds by the dozens to, to see what's going on with them physically uh, and, and dissecting them. Uh, you know, they're relying on those bird counts from birders, from bird watchers. And just like, you know, that's important to them, you know, filling out the information uh, from an angler survey or a, you know, a creel survey or just getting folks to, to give that feedback, well, that's just huge for the DEC and it really helps go a long way for them to really gauge the health of a fishery. Well, folks, you hear that music? That's right. Segment number two is now in the can and I've got to take my next break of the morning. But don't go anywhere, folks, because we love outdoors with Rich Davenport. We'll be right back. Welcome back, all you sportsmen and women and conservationists across New York State and the Fruited Plain to We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport coming to you on Anchor.fm, powered by Spotify. Yeah, folks, you know, this is segment number three, 
and uh, you know I just wanted to go around the horn here a little bit because we've got a whole bunch of other news that's out there uh, and you know this past week brought some interesting tidbits of news from across the outdoor spectrum um, you know so some of the things that are going on you know first uh, according to the Great Lakes Sport Fishing Commission's February 2022 issue of their Great Lakes Basin Report Believe it or not, there's been a series of earthquakes that continue to shake the western basin of Lake Erie, just northeast of Cleveland, generating dozens of reports from local residents feeling these tremors. In the last 40 days, five earthquakes ranging in magnitude from 1.6 to 2.5 on the Richter scale have been measured in a cluster just offshore in the southwestern portion of the lake. The seismic activity has been determined to have an epicenter two miles offshore under depths of around 40 feet of water, three miles beneath the lake bottom. It was noted that these quakes are not happening along active fault lines like those found out west, rather along ancient faults near Ohio, also known as magnetic faults, that occasionally move from time to time. The U.S. Geological Service cautions that it's very rare for a significant magnitude quake uh, that does any damage to occur along such ancient fault lines. But damaging quakes are indeed within the realm of possibility. It's kind of comforting, right? Uh, it's believed the area is actually experiencing aftershock quakes from a much larger event that occurred in 2019, which was a 4.0, wow, 4.0 magnitude rumbler that rattled southeast Michigan, northern Ohio, and even parts of western Pennsylvania. That happened on June 19th or June 11th of 2019. The Ohio DNR reported that over 200 earthquakes with epicenters around Ohio have occurred since 1776, with most happening in the area that is seeing seismic activity now. No reports of damage have been received, and the earthquakes are generally too weak right now you know, to generate any kind of uh, Great Lakes tsunamis. Great Lakes tsunamis. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but... Uh, you know, apparently if you get a strong enough earthquake, yeah, you could have a Great Lakes tsunami. That's pretty interesting. Meanwhile, COVID, COVID, COVID continues to be a thing despite the track of the epidemic now showing the end has already arrived, already arrived, and it's been ended for quite some time now. And remnant of this event uh, are now showing caused by those very weakened due to evolution strains, which now cause mild cold symptoms in the vast majority of those getting affected. And even these cases of far more contagious but far less dangerous strains are now dropping as the vast majority of Americans have either been infected and now have natural immunity, or they've received doses of vaccines that health officials tell us do not stop you from contracting COVID and passing COVID to others, but makes the symptoms of the disease far more mild in an attempt to tell the populace that this is how the experimental vaccines work. Sure. Uh, red states, meanwhile, have now lifted all COVID restrictions with small pockets of kooks still trying to hang on to their masking mandates in schools by suing GOP governors moving, uh, moving to allow parental choice for their kids when it comes to wearing masks but you know folks in the blue states you know where a crisis you never let go to waste um this is a crisis that seems to be something even more powerful than charlie brown's best pal linus's need for his blanket to get by in any day-to-day -day activities seriously folks the word now is reaching me that new york state's department of health 
has been proposing regulations to bolster their powers to quarantine and isolate New Yorkers, including ripping us from our homes during an event that the Department of Health and politicians claim is an emergency. This is not narrowly limited to COVID, COVID, COVID either, but empowers the Department of Health to identify any communicable disease to be covered under this regulation. And the list of illnesses would be published on the DOH website and shared with county health departments across the state so they can act as their Gestapo. Interesting, isn't it? We've had all this time and all these centuries and never had to have any of this. And then all of a sudden we've got one thing that's, you know comes out that's pretty much a, you know, a, a severe cold that, you know, older people and, and people who are not in good health can actually succumb to, which is no different than any other illness, any other severe illness, anyhow. Uh, and all of a sudden, we're now talking about quarantine rules and this and that and everything else. It's our immune systems that'll handle it. Uh, those who are at high risk should be advised to make sure that they take their precautions. And if you're sick, you get isolated. If you've had close contact, you get quarantined. But you don't go after the healthy like has been the case in this absolute debacle. And you know, while I'm on it though, this is kind of eerily similar to what happened in New York back in 2005 when a fish pathogen called viral hemorrhagic septicemia type 4B emerged in smallmouth bass and in muscalunge in Lake Ontario and in Lake St. Clair back in 2005 again. This detection of this disease, VHS, was the first time it was found attacking warm water species of fish. The prior three types of VHS were known cold water hatchery diseases impacting trout and salmon with mortality rates up to 100% when outbreaks occurred in these contained facilities. Considering the deadly nature of this hatchery disease, the US FDA's APHIS Division, that's Animal and Plant Health Information System Division, implemented emergency regulation shutting down transport of live freshwater fish across state lines in the Great Lakes region leading to each Great Lakes state to take their own actions to limit the movements of live fish within their own borders, including bait fish, until more could be learned about this virus and offering protections of important fisheries like lakes like Oneida and Chautauqua Lake from potential exposure. And despite admitting that they knew nothing about this virus, actions to head off uh, a what-if were officially codified, requiring all bait fish to undergo testing and be certified disease-free in order to be transported over land and used in any body of water in the state. The added benefit to Great Lakes anglers was that no bait fish from confirmed VHS positive waters could be collected and sold for bait or used for bait regardless of whether the bait fish tested negative for VHS. But the regulations put into effect were not just limited to preventing VHS type 4B from spreading. Oh, no, 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 no. In fact, several other fish pathogens were included, such as whirling disease and red spot kidney disease and the koi herpes virus. Those were added to the list. And, you know, even though all of the pathogens that are listed predominantly occur in hatcheries, not in the wild, they were nevertheless added to the final regulations that were codified in 2006, you know, and you needed to, you know, show your bait fish papers, which was a receipt outlining what species of bait, how many, the date of purchase, who sold them to you, and the stamp that stated these were certified disease-free minnows, or else you were subjected to a fine if you didn't have your papers.
Of course, a few years later, fisheries officials examining Lake St. Clair Muskie discovered many fish showed antibodies to VHS, something thought impossible, as the virus caused 100% mortality. Apparently not. Nature found a way, as nature always does. Yet to this day, adjustment of the rules established in response to VHS outbreaks as have not been happening. They, they haven't adjusted. They haven't even dropped them. I mean, they should have dropped them. Uh, once that was discovered, you know, that meant that you weren't going to be hurting those, those waterways like you thought. But neither here nor there, because they added other fish pathogens to this requirement, and the rules cover more than just VHS, those rules will never be changed, even though all of those illnesses can be traced right back to a hatchery. And, you know, maybe the hatcheries, you know, need to be better controlled or, you know, maybe there, there needs to be different conditions or, or a change in methodology to make sure that they're not spreading these diseases around and then releasing them into the wild when they're stocking. Who knows? But, you know, when I look at the VHS rules and the minnow papers and everything else and the lack of changing and the being done in the face of a lack of science, just like, you know, COVID, 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 oh my God, it's brand new. We've never seen it before in our lives. We're all going to die. We got to, really folks, we should take a breath. Medical science has known about coronaviruses, the coronaviridae family since 1960, and science doesn't reinvent the wheel all the time. We rely on what we've learned in the past to help guide us in the future. That was not done in this case, and it's clear that it was done for other reasons beyond public health because public health is the last thing that even is being addressed here. They're not even telling you and showing you that it is required. They're just saying, don't question it or else. It's really, really just disgusting. But a lot of parallels there. Meanwhile, hunting and fishing are arguably the only activities that are self-funding in terms of conservation and protection and restoration and recreational enjoyment. As to both license sales and the purchase of gear necessary to hunt or fish, and exclusively so, all the programs and regulations are paid for. And they're not paid for by tax dollars, they're paid for by those participating voluntarily. And they work. According to a recent post on their social media page, the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Department announced that, you know, your money hard at work, folks. 41-year-old Shiloh Berry received a lifetime hunting ban in the state of Montana after pleading guilty to illegally taking a moose in 2019. According to the post, the investigation began with a report to wardens of a dead moose east of Townsend, Montana. Investigating wardens discovered the carcass, which was missing its head, while the rest of the meat was intact on the body. During the search of the surrounding area, distinctive boot prints and truck tires tracks were noted. In April of 2020, another report came in concerning someone in possession of moose antlers with claims he discovered them in the same area where the moose carcass was discovered a year prior. A search warrant was then executed, found the antlers, the boots matching the prints, and the tires matching the tracks. Later, the man confessed to killing the moose and taking its head. Uh, this uh, individual, Shiloh Berry, again age 41, uh, pleaded guilty to unlawful possession of a game, an game animal, hunting without a valid license, and the waste of a game animal. Along with his lifetime hunting, or hunting ban in Montana, Barry was also sentenced to a five-year suspended prison sentence, blah, 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 fines and restitution totaling $12,100, and having his fishing privileges also suspended for three years. See, now, without your purchase of a hunting license and hunting gear and fishing license and fishing gear, 
the wardens wouldn't be able to do their jobs because this is where you know part of their paycheck gets funded from this is where the protections are in place this goes back to Teddy Roosevelt back in the day when he began establishing this stuff in New York State and was later codified into a conservation, uh, federal conservation program in the 1930s, 1932-1933 with the Robertson Pittman Act. And that established the Federal Conservation Fund and told all the states that if they have a hunting and fishing license whose funding is solely for conservation purposes, that they will receive matching federal funds. And fishing was added to that in 1955 under the Johnson-Dingle Act that was later updated under Wallop Row in 1984 or 1985. You know, so these activities, by virtue of what we do to enjoy them and the enjoyment that we get out of it, actually protects and restores and furthers these natural resources, these wild treasures. So we make we can assure that the kids not yet born have something like this and maybe even better than what we have today. I mean, that's how it works, folks, and that's a great thing. And, you know, seeing that, you know, this investigation in Montana started in 2019, but just finally resolved in, in 2022, um, you know, that's that's a testament to the hard work and the investigative work and the funding that comes in to support all of that. They're doing their job for the dollars you spend, folks, and that's a great thing. Well, folks, you hear that music coming up again? That's right. The fastest podcast in podcast history has got to take its final break of the day. But please, folks, don't go anywhere. Just stretch your legs, maybe get another cup of coffee, and don't go anywhere because We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport. We'll be right back. Welcome back, all you sportsmen and women and conservationists across New York State and the Fruited Plain to the final segment of this episode of We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport coming to you from Sunday, Tandawanda, New York. Yes, indeed, folks, it's been a great morning. You know, we've had a lot of good stuff going on. Uh, you know, we, we're winding down into February, the shortest month of the year. Uh, temperatures are now starting to fluctuate a little bit. You know, they're going up, they're going down. Uh, and this can play a little bit of havoc on the shoreline quality of ice right now. So be careful out there. I know it was a little slushy on Chautauqua Lake this past weekend after a deluge hit, um, you know, earlier in the week. And then we had that wonderful blizzard on Saturday. It tightened a lot of things up, but... You know, it's 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 getting to that point in the year where it's going to start getting a little bit uh, uh, challenging. So, you know, be careful. The, the lake ice itself was still 14, 15 inches thick, so there was no trouble with that. But um, in any event, uh, just be aware. You know, the days are getting longer, too, and pretty soon we're going to have daylight to 7 p.m. 
That's right. We've got it out right now about till 6.30. So, you know, days are getting longer. The nights are getting shorter. But the nights are still longer than the days right now until we get that vernal equinox in uh, in March around the 21st or 22nd when the daylight hours and the darkness hours are equal. And then we start swinging the other way. Can't wait, right? So, you know, earlier I mentioned in this podcast that when the DEC does good, I applaud them, right? And I did. I took the time to applaud them. Well, the same is true in the opposite. And when the DEC does bad, I excoriate them. And now we got to talk about bad DEC, okay? One thing that mystifies me, the DEC is also, um, due to the 2019 Arbitrary and Capricious Climate Change Law in New York State, the DEC co-chairs a body called the Climate Action Committee. And it would appear the actions of the committee, or that the committee is coming up with, I should say, are contrary to the mission of the New York State DEC. And the silence from Albany, higher up, you know, certainly higher up than, than the fisheries folks or than in wildlife uh, anywhere, concerning the lack of environmental impact studies being commissioned to determine what would occur with industrial turbine construction and operation, the silence is deafening. This wasn't conducted, uh, you know, especially when you talk about the Great Lakes. Uh, there wasn't a feasibility and an impact study or an impact study in the feasibility study that was conducted 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Um, all it was was economics and this and that. And that Great Lakes feasibility study um, had no activity from research and development agencies uh, spearheading the nonsense, um, you know, for the redo either. So you've got a, a, a feasibility study that was done in 2010, and now you've got this redo that was done in 2021, should be released any moment now in 2022 from NYSERDA, and neither one of them have on their radar anything to do with any kind of environmental impacts to the Great Lakes, uh, to the fish, to the migrating birds, to anything. They haven't looked at any of that whatsoever, nor do they want to. And, you know, one has to wonder which direction the DEC will fall on as they are the ones charged with protecting the natural resources on behalf of the people of New York State. Well, on Friday, February 18th, 2022, Commissioner Basil Sagos um, announced uh, that appointments to fill uh, three key leadership roles within the DEC executive and regional teams, he had announced them, those names. And the press release quotes the commissioner as stating, as DEC ramps up efforts to advance Governor Kathy Hochul's nation-leading environmental agenda and clean energy revolution, elevating Erica Ringwald and Kathy Haas to key leadership positions and adding Leo Rosales to our team bolsters our capacity and our commitment, Commissioner Sago said. New York is at a critical moment in the fight to combat climate change. And I look forward to working with DEC's incredible team of experts to meet the moment and recharge our efforts to protect our natural resources and communities. Say what? So, yeah, this is this is doublespeak and BS. Um, so Erica Ringwald, who served the DEC as Deputy Commissioner of Public Affairs, was named the Chief of Staff for DEC. Her primary expertise regards or is in regards to outreach and communications and is credited with transforming DEC's press office into one of the strongest communications operations in the state. 
Before she worked at DEC, this is interesting, she helped manage media relations at the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA, and worked as an independent consultant to not-for-profit organizations and foundations and served as communication director for Environmental Advocates of New York. What kind of qualifications does she have to be a chief of staff beyond being a propagandist? Hmm. We'll circle back. Leo Rosales, meanwhile, was named Deputy Commissioner for Public Affairs, most recently in his role as Vice Chancellor of Communications at the State University of New York, Rosales led all aspects of the university's day-to-day -day communication operations and provided guidance to SUNY's 64 campuses. His other work for New York State included serving as Deputy Director of Communications in the Office of the Governor. So he was Cuomo's right-hand man for communications. Can't imagine that this is a, a job to, to be a thank you or some sort of patronage. Um, and he... he, he took key leadership at several agencies on issues ranging from energy and the environment to labor and higher education and at the Department of Labor, really. Uh, Rosales also served in various communication advisory boards uh, with, or advisory roles with the U.S. EPA in their Chicago and New York regional offices and with members of the New York State Legislature. He has a degree in political science from uh, SUNY at Albany. Why does that sound like another member of the A propaganda team, huh? It does. It sounds like the propaganda machine is starting to spin up for a sales job on wind turbines and solar panels replacing forests and farmlands and why DEC thinks it's good. And we also now can confirm the propaganda is coming from the top. The commission has put the department in a conflict of the highest order, and it looks like believing in the notion that we are saving the planet trumps the responsibility of protecting the natural resources of New York on behalf of the people and the wildlife and fish within the boundaries of this state. He is actually selling out this department and trying to use the department as a guise to give a rubber stamp, a rubber stamp to destroying our ecosystems, our uh, wild heritage, our Great Lakes, our drinking water, all in the name of things that do not work to for, to save the planet that doesn't need saving in name of a, a crisis that doesn't exist. And yet he wants to destroy our farmlands and our forests, chasing after the rainbow that is wind energy and solar energy, and none of that will ever, ever, ever deliver what the grid needs because of the nature of the fuel source itself. Absolutely unbelievable. So get ready, folks. We're going to start getting propaganda from the DEC and why we don't need to do any environmental impact studies and environmental impact assessments because, you know, it's we have to save the planet. So that means that it's okay. Region 1, meanwhile, now has a new director in Kathy Haas, and she has served regions, the Region 1 office for nearly three decades. She started her degree in, or her career in the Division of Spills Management before serving nearly 25 years within the Division of Water. Most recently, Haas has served as the Regional Engineer for Water Remediation and Mined Land. So, you know, that one I can't chuck under the bus too badly, but you can see what they're doing. They're positioning people that, that talk about water and claim to be water experts 
so they can go ahead and ramrod through and try to get you to believe that this is going to be great for the water. There's no problem. Never mind the contaminants on the bottom of Lake Erie. We're more worried about the Hudson River and the 100,000 people that get drinking water from them and the contaminants on the bottom of that river, but we're not worried about the 11 plus million people that get their drinking water from Lake Erie across New York and in Canada and, and the toxins that are down on the bottom of that body of water. Unbelievable. So if two out of three ain't bad, I guess one out of three ain't good. And this is the bad DEC coming up to give you some wonderful, wonderful propaganda here. Get ready for it. Meanwhile, these moves are obviously geared at setting up a propaganda push along with Sierra Club to dupe the people into further believing that the arbitrary and capricious climate change law will do anything but decimate New York and the people's ability to live their lives in this once great state. Commissioner Sagos has abandoned the original charter of his executive branch department to foist the greatest injustice and most environmentally destructive policy agenda ever to be hatched. But the people can change this trajectory of this nonsense and they can do it you know in this death spiral state you can do it now and that we can do that this november as not just the midterms are happening federally but this is also new york's gubernatorial election and where we can choose between tyrannical and communist democrats I mean, I don't see any real Democrats running for office this year, folks. Or you can choose a middle, right-of-the-road Republican congressman who is uh, running. That would be Lee Zeldin. Um, you know, of course, it does appear there could be a GOP primary, but right now it's, it's Congressman Lee Zeldin that's the front-runner, and it looks like he's going to take on Kathy Hochul. And in that vein, the Citizens Against Wind Turbines in Lake Erie met with candidate Zeldin last week at the Hamburg Library to discuss their concerns and show him the issue of keeping industrial wind turbines out of Lake Erie waters. It is a fully bipartisan and devoid of ideological leanings issue. As members of Cautile cross every political and socioeconomic divide imaginable. And in one big voice, the people are saying no. But the fake Democrats of today are deaf and only slow down when sued. But even those tyrants ignore the court orders when they lose. And they lose too often to even listen to them and give, you know, give them any kind of power over you. It really has come down to that, folks. The state needs a big-time direction change, and that is the only way you're going to change the top of the DEC. Stop the sellout to China and crony capitalism funded by our tax dollars pushing us further along the road to communism. DEC must get back to protecting New York's natural resources first and foremost, and away from the nonsense of making up a carbon market and steering an environmentally destructive energy policy that delivers no energy for the higher costs that we will all suffer. And as more tyranny is pushed, more are rising up to meet them, and there's a new coalition called the American Coalition for Ocean Protection, or ACOP, a coalition of multi-state smaller organizations opposed to offshore wind factories due to cost and severe damage these will do as inadequate environmental protection studies uh, leave too many legitimate questions and concerns unanswered and indeed ignored. This alliance of organizations has already established their Oceanic Environmental Legal Defense Fund. You can see that at www.oceanlegaldefense.org and has filed a resolution opposing wind factories that are planned for off the coast of Delaware. That's interesting. Where's Biden's home state again? So they're going to protect that one. Never mind. We'll, we'll talk about them later. And it also appears like the New York State is selling out their mission to the ideological nonsense for greed and power. 
The EPA is now stepping up to flatly contradict their mission, too, as last week they announced that a billion dollars from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act will be headed to, to accelerate cleanup and restoration works on the Great Lakes. From the press release, today, this was February 17, 2022, or 2021, rather, um, last year, today, President Biden and the U.S. EPA Administer Michael Regan announced that a direct result of the bipartisan infrastructure law, the EPA will make significant progress in the cleanup and restoration of the Great Lakes' most environmentally degraded sites, securing clean water and a better environment for millions of Americans in the Great Lakes region. The agency will use the bulk of a billion-dollar investment in the Great Lakes from the bipartisan infrastructure law to clean up and restore severely degraded sites known as areas of concern. This will allow for a major acceleration of progress that will deliver significant environmental, economic, health, and recreational benefits for the communities throughout the Great Lakes region. Quote, the Great Lakes are a vital economic engine and irreplaceable environmental wonder, supplying drinking water for more than 40 million people, supporting more than 1.3 million jobs, and sustaining life for thousands of species. Through the investment from President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law, we will make unprecedented progress in our efforts to help restore and protect the waters and build communities of the Great Lakes Basin. Building a better America means investing in our natural resources and the communities they support. Isn't that interesting? So while they're stating that, they're going to be pushing and trying to decimate the waters with industrial wind turbines. Incredible. You know, if they want to go ahead and spend $1.33 billion to put those wind turbines offshore in Lake Erie, you know, meanwhile, you've got 1.3 million jobs in the Great Lakes Basin and a lot of 50,000-plus just in the, the Lake Erie area, generating $82 billion in wages. So we want to, you know, spend, um, you know, $900,000 a job to get 1,500 fictitious jobs that we will never get while jeopardizing 1.3 million jobs that deliver actual wages of $82 billion annually, which averages $63,000 a job. Those are some nice paying jobs, and why do we want to risk that for the promise of 1,500 jobs that will never materialize? You wanted some examples of that truth? Look at Solar City for the Buffalo Billion. Those targets were not met, promises broken. Or perhaps maybe steel winds along the Lake Lackawanna area of the shoreline were three whole permanent jobs from all that spending while requiring expensive repairs three times over, contradicting the legitimacy of a 20-year life cycle. Um, you know, that's it, three jobs. That's it. You know, if we're serious about cleaning up our fresh waters of life and want to create many more jobs to complement the 1.3 million directly due to the lakes returning to health, after 50 years of industrial pollution and another 50 years of cleanup and natural healing, then we will implement a permanent moratorium on offshore wind energy in the Great Lakes and instead utilize the obscene money planned to be spent on something that will not deliver a thing and insist that the investment instead be made in expanding natural gas power plants and upgrading the wastewater treatment systems and sewers to reduce the ever-growing pharmaceutical and microplastic contamination now threatening the life in the lake and the communities through these emerging contaminants in our drinking and bathing water. Even the UN understands how investment in wastewater treatment projects delivers good-paying jobs in a lot of them. The United, World, United Nations World Water Development Report, Water and Jobs of 2016, recognized the critical importance of clean, healthy water and its economic growth and the jobs related to it to clean up those waters. They recognized it. 
even every I mean every project public um, project that has public money invested in it, which improves wastewater treatment and transport systems, delivers measurable jobs both during construction and after. With the gross post-system upgrade uh, acting to replenish the tax coffers after seeing the account drop with the investment to fix the sewers and such. That's what we should be doing, not pursuing folly. But again, folks, it's not about electrical energy and it's not about saving the planet. It's about something far more insidious, and it's that's attacking your natural rights and your ability to travel freely and afford anything and self-determine. They want you on the government rolls. They want you dependent upon them. So you have to keep these people in power in perpetuity while eliminating your natural rights to use these resources as you see fit. Well, folks, you hear that music? That's right. That means my time for the day is done. But I hope you found this uh, episode of We Love Outdoors both entertaining and uh, informative. And I really, really hope you're enjoying uh, this podcast's weekly uh, information that you just don't get out anywhere else. And folks, I'm going to say goodbye today, but just remember that I'm going to be here next week, same bat time, same bat channel. So don't worry about a thing, and God bless. <laughs>